Welcome to You Wear It Well. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Heiserman, physical therapist and founder and CEO of Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services. We're at the intersection of fashion and technology, otherwise known as wearables. We look at the people, products, and research that make up this exciting world of wearables. Are you a fashion designer, electrical engineer, or someone with the dream of designing a wearable? Apply for membership to my LinkedIn group page, Biotech Fashion, and join in the discussion. Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services provides a broad array of design and engineering professionals for your wearable project. We feature the following design specialties, pattern making, digital textile, athletic wear, sensor, fashion, exoskeleton, robotics, and mechatronics. We also offer beta testing of your wearable in our private clinic. You choose the demographics and sample size, send us the sample, and we take care of the rest. For more information, go to www.spectrumergonomics.com for more information. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of You Wear It Well. And on today's episode, my very special guest is Dr. Igor Efimov, and he has a very, very interesting implantable that he's going to discuss on the show today. But he's the expert on it, not me. So I'm going to turn the show over to Dr. Efimov. Dr. Efimov, the show is yours. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, I'm talking from Chicago, from uh, ca campus of Northwestern University, where I am a professor of biomedical engineering and also professor of medicine in the division of cardiology. I'm actually a physicist by training, but uh, serendipitously ended up in biomedical engineering field during my grad school. I uh, got very interested in sudden cardiac death and cardiac arrhythmias, and that's what I'm, I'm studying my whole life using various uh, engineering approaches, including imaging devices, uh, catheters. So I developed uh, hardware, I developed uh, interventional catheters, implantable devices, and wearable electronics. But uh, today I will be talking about one particular approach, which I think is uh, very exciting and, and very new. This is uh, so-called transient electronics or temporary electronics, which is made of materials which are bioresorbable. So this is exciting field which came from material science. I'm really fortunate to work with Professor John Rogers, who is the director of uh, Simpson Query Institute for Bioelectronics here at Northwestern, and he invented various materials and various uh, fabrication techniques, which we together put in, into the uh, actually useful cardiac device. So in general, you all familiar, I'm sure, with pacemakers and defibrillators and wearable electronics. These are all already very powerful therapeutics and diagnostic devices, but one feature common to all of them is they are permanent. 
they basically made of materials which will never degrade and they will stay pretty much for as long as we live. But uh, there are some patients who actually require a temporary pacemaker. And uh, if we go back to history, so about in 1950s, Walt Lillehei, who was a surgeon at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, so he was the first to successfully treat a heart defect. So heart defect is a malformation essentially of the heart during embryonic development, which unfortunately affects about 1% of all babies born in the United States or worldwide. So there are approximately 40,000 babies are born every year in the United States with congenital heart defects. And about a quarter of them require surgery within the first year of life. Otherwise, they, they will die because of uh, blood between left and right heart will be mixing and oxygenation will not be appropriate. And Walt Lehigh was the first surgeon to, to solve this problem by surgical means. So he basically was able to develop a surgical procedure by which he would open the chest of the baby, a newborn, and uh, open the heart, switch this opening uh, in the septum between left and right heart, and will repair, essentially, mechanics of the heart. However, one side effect he noticed after the surgery in almost every patient was that after the procedure, after the surgery, for about five, seven days, heart is unable to properly get electrically excited, which is normally done through the conduction system of the heart. And it requires an electronic pacemaker. Uh, fortunately, it's only for several days, but, it, but you have to have a pacemaker. So actually, uh, historically, it was a big event because he asked his engineer in the lab, in his surgical lab, who, whose name was Earl Bakken, to design the pacemaker. And this engineer designed the pacemaker, and, and uh, the rest is history, but he founded company Medtronic in the process. That's how Medtronic was actually founded on, on the request of Dr. Lilihai. And since those days, the same pacemaker is pretty much is used up to now for temporary pacing. And what essentially it means, a wire is inserted, uh, sewn directly onto the surface of the heart by the surgeon at the end of the surgical procedure. And then an incision is made on the side of the body of the patient. And through this incision, a wire is connected to the external generator, which would stimulate the heart. And then when the heart will repair after the surgery, which again will take five to seven days on average, wire will be just basically pulled out of the heart. So this is a procedure state-of-the-art as we know it now, and it was the same in 1950s. Unfortunately, as you might imagine, it's a pretty invasive procedure, requires removal of this wire, and sometimes, unfortunately, it leads to devastating consequences. For example, astronaut Neil Armstrong actually died from after such procedure because after removal of the wire, unfortunately, part of the heart was also removed, and, and this led to devastating consequences. Such uh, catastrophic scenarios are not very common, of course, but still they are possible. And that's basically the turning point, how we come up with the idea that perhaps we can invent a device which will not be requiring uh, surgical removal and it will eliminate this risk of uh, damaging the heart muscle during removal. And uh, fortunately, again, material scientists invented already a number of materials. And to create a pacemaker, of course, you need conductors, you need insulators, you need semiconductors, and you need electrodes. So, so all these materials have been uh, developed, invented, uh, and basically we put together the first electronic pacemaker, which was published in several papers over the last three, four years with uh, John Rogers' laboratory. And 
Such pacemaker essentially will be placed on the surface of the heart after the surgery. And these are patients, not only the babies who are born with congenital heart defect, but also adult patients. There is approximately uh, 1.5 million adult uh, patients uh, and also about 1 million children who have congenital heart defect, not very major, but still in some cases requires surgery. But also patients who require, for example, bypass graft or uh, repair of the valve. Uh, in, in all of these surgeries, there is a likelihood of uh, so-called AV block, which is what I was mentioning all, all along, uh, defect of conduction system. And they all require temporary pacemakers. So potentially we are talking about tens of thousands of patients or if worldwide, perhaps hundreds of thousands of patients which would require such a temporary pacemaker. So that's essentially how we come up with this idea. Well, very good overview of that, uh, especially talking about the history. I think it's important for people to understand that it has been around a long time and you can't always make breakthroughs until material science can help you to make that breakthrough. I think that's a really important point that you brought up there, especially with Dr. Rogers there at the university, being able to work with so many other specialists to make these things happen. So let's talk a little bit about the materials as much as you can. I know there may be some proprietary information here that would not be shared, but just in general, let's talk a little bit about the technology. First of all, a lot of listeners might be saying, how do you get wires to dissolve? This is, doesn't metal just either rust away or just kind of corrode? I mean, how do they dissolve? So tell us a little bit about that. How do you get the actual wiring, It's just the wiring itself, to absorb? Well, you know, interestingly, uh, we always think about metal as something, like you said, which doesn't dissolve or uh, oxidizes and corrodes. But actually, certain metals are dissolvable and, in fact, dissolvable without any adverse effects. Also, semiconductors. We always think about silicon, crystals of silicon as a semiconductor. But uh, interestingly, if you make it very, very thin within uh, you know, several micrometers, they are actually also dissolvable just at very, very slow rate. Even glass, normal glass, which we have in our windows, is also dissolvable. If you look at the windows of some ancient cathedral in, in France, let's say, or Germany, you will notice that it's opaque because of centuries of rain, it dissolves from the outside. So basically, if you make, for example, some coating of glass, and by the way, glass, if it's only a few micrometers in, in thickness, it becomes actually flexible. It's not brittle like what we, we, we used to see in normal uh, everyday life. So basically, all these materials are actually dissolvable, and the only trick is how to make them very thin within microns or even less than microns. So our materials are really well, well known. So some of them are already are commonly used in various implantable devices, for example, in stents or some other devices. So that's why we actually chose materials which are already FDA approved for, for use other than electronics, but still for use as a dissolvable material for, for implantable devices. So we have essentially conductor in our case is molybdenum. So molybdenum is a metal, but it is dissolvable. So we use silicon for our semiconductors. We need uh, essentially a couple of diodes uh, to transfer energy to our pacemaker. And then there are a number of materials which are all listed in published papers, organic materials, which are basically also uh, surface, for example, backbone of the device or as insulator, all of them are dissolvable. And we picked the outline, the design of the device in such a way that it serves precisely 
5.7 days, as I mentioned before, is needed. We can make it more if necessary, but apparently it's not needed for that particular application. And after that, it will dissolve. It will st stop working at approximately one week or so, and then it will completely dissolve away at about one month. So we, we've tested it in animals so far, in uh, mice and rats. So we found that it's completely safe. So we did blood work uh, as what one would normally do in the clinic and found no evidence of adverse effects, any kind of inflammation. And uh, like I said, the studies also showed that in about 30, 35 days, basically pacemaker is dissolved away without any trace. And animals feel just fine, so they behave properly and they are gaining weight as they grow. There is no adverse effect whatsoever. That's really fascinating that we're at that point now where we can do that. Now let's talk a little bit about newborns and having pacemakers put in for basically for a short amount of time, but the technology then did not allow them to be taken out, so to speak, although pulling the wire, like you said, is, is can be very damaging to the heart, if not deadly, like you had mentioned with uh, Neil Armstrong. In the research, have you actually taken a look at the materials and how thick you want them as far as to dissolve at a faster or slower pace? depending upon if it's a baby rat versus an adult rat, tissue of infant mouse versus an adult mouse that you'd want to test out and see what, how, what thickness or what materials would be better with the cardiac tissue of an infant mouse versus an adult mouse? Yeah, it's a very good question. And again, even though I'm only talking about bioresorbable pacemaker, but of course, this work was preceded by years of work in, in the area of flexible and stretchable electronics, meaning that we wanted to create electronic device which would seamlessly interface with a soft biological tissue, but also in the case of heart, not just soft, but also contracting biological tissue. So essentially, about 10 years ago, we published one of the first papers of uh, such a device which would be designed in the following way. So you take a CT or MRI image of, of the heart, in our case, in this paper in 2014, we used heart of the rabbit, but it can be baby or adult. So you make a, an image, you segment it mathematically on a computer, you print it on a 3D printer, and then you mold your electronic device to the shape uh, which you need to interface with. So basically, the device will be precisely molded to that shape, and then on that device, on this biological membrane, you will print your soft, flexible electronics components. And these components have essentially whatever sensors or actuators you desire. You can, for example, sense electrical signals or stimulate electrically. You can sense me mechanics. You can sense light because light carries some very important physiological information about, for example, metabolism. You can sense temperature and on and on. And uh, all of that, uh, all the sensors and all interconnects, all wires are flexible and stretchable. So basically, based on this experience of already more than 10 years, we can now design device precisely to size and condition of the patient. So it could be a, sm a small heart as a baby or a large heart for an adult uh, patient. And for each particular patient, it, uh, it can be designed to the size and to stiffness of the heart muscle and, and to specifications. And then most importantly, also to the uh, desired physiological signals uh, or interventions which you want. Like, for instance, if you are electrically stimulating, you, you, you have to provide electrodes for stimulation. Or if you use, for example, fluorescence for um, measuring metabolic signals, you have to deliver light with a tiny, tiny light-emitting diode. 
and then you have to collect light back, which is a fluorescent light coming out from the heart, which carries information about in, in, uh, metabolism. So we can also do uh, intervention with temperature, for example, for cardiac ablation, when you need to identify and eliminate the source of arrhythmia, so, so we can, it can be achieved through heating or cooling a piece of tissue or electroporating piece of tissue. So these are different interventions, therapeutic interventions, which are currently used routinely in the clinical practice. And our devices uh, can be basically designed precisely to deliver that type of signal. So basically, you're absolutely right. We have to be careful uh, targeting very specific uh, patient's anatomy, mechanics, uh, electrophysiology, and, and technology allows to do that. And uh, so all of that I said was done for non-bioresorbable uh, devices. So now we're essentially embarking on a new path, how to adopt all of that to bioresorbable devices, or to temporary uh, devices. And most recent paper, and I guess that's the one which triggered your interest, we went one step further from the pacemaker. And we uh, aim to de develop a device where you have multiple electrodes, and all of these multiple electrodes also are bioresorbable, but also they are optically transparent. So, which means we can interface them with optical components. Because as I mentioned, in addition to sensing electrical signals from the heart and stimulating the heart electrically, uh, a lot of important information can be gained through light technology, so optics. So like I said, we can measure, for example, metabolic signals, but we also can measure many other biological signals through light using fluorescence. And to achieve that, you need various light-emitting diodes, which essentially send light to the heart muscle at different wavelengths, different color. And we have to collect light back uh, at the wavelength of fluorescence, again, with different uh, wavelengths or different uh, color of the light. So all of that was basically achieved in our most recent paper in which I collaborated with Professor Lu Yao Lu, who is also a material scientist who actually was trained originally by John Rogers. And uh, I recruited him when I was department chair at George Washington University, from which I moved recently. But we continue collaborating with Professor Lu. That's very fascinating. But I'm sure along the way in your research, you encountered some hurdles, some challenges. Tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced along the way of looking at implantable morphing into dissolvable implants. Well, you're right. There are several challenges. So one of them is uh, when I first thought about making actually a tiny pacemaker for babies with, uh, after surgery, we actually tried to do the device which has battery. But because we did the studies in small animals like mice, device has to be very, very small. And we ended up essentially with failing making a device which has batteries and microprocessor because it was 10 years ago, technology was not small enough. And as a result of that, of our failure to deliver such a device, I come up with the idea that instead of using batteries, why don't we make a device which has no batteries? Uh, and we can use inductive power transfer, similar like what you have, for example, with two inductors uh, transmitting the energy from one to another, which is you, you do in every day when you charge your telephone, for instance, when you put it on a magnetic charger. There is no uh, wire connecting your phone to, to your charger, but you transmit power through basically two coils uh, through which you pass current. So the same approach we used in, in our pacemaker. So pacemaker essentially was a very tiny device which has no batteries and really no electronics. It was very simplistic electronics. So it has only one coil 
very similar to what you have in your phone charger. Then it has a couple of diodes to basically just rectify AC current to DC current and then two wires to connect to the heart. That's all in the pacemaker is nothing else in terms of electronic components. And then, of course, in order to transmit this power, you need source of energy, which is outside the body. So pacemaker is implanted, it's connected directly to the heart, it's inside the chest uh, of the patient, in our case it was mouse or rat. But then on the outside, we have another coil, which in, in people, for, for instance, can be made as a wearable device. A small wearable device, which we call cardiac module, can be attached to the chest of the patient. It's the size of approximately postal stamp. Very small, uh, doesn't really complicate life. And this device uh, serves a number of purposes. First of all, it controls pacemaker. So basically, it sends inf information and, and power to the pacemaker. It controls every, every uh, pulse which stimulates the heart. Second, it also has built-in sensors to actually record electrocardiogram from the patient because we need to establish whether or not the patient is required for this patient. Because as I mentioned previously, in these patients over time, over five, seven days, heart will re repair, self-repair, and at some point it will be able to, to stimulate uh, the heart itself. So it doesn't require any pacemaker. And device must be able to catch this moment and stop stimulation because you, you don't need to uh, induce arrhythmia by unnecessary stimulation. And uh, our device is capable of doing it. It's called on-demand pacing. So it only stimulates or paces the heart when it's needed. And when it's not needed, it will stop stimulating. And in addition to that, because actually this wearable device, uh, cardiac module, has a number of other functions, including, for example, measurements of physical activity, it can be also recharged because it, it does have battery, of course, an external module. And also can be uh, actually communicating with uh, iPhone or uh, a tablet uh, to basically transmit information to the physician. And physician will have full access 24-7 to the data from this device, will have knowledge about patient's condition, about heart condition of that patient. And all of that is instrumented in this little wearable device. So essentially, Therapy, as we envision, will consist of two parts, at least. One part is implantable, wearable, biresorbable, I'm sorry, biresorbable, implantable device, and another one, which is a wearable device, not biresorbable, which, which serves to control the pacemaker, but then when pacemaker is no longer needed, you can just remove it from the chest and basically send it back to the physician for analysis. Yeah, that's very fascinating also. <laughs> Are you a startup? Wearable company? Don't know where quite to go from here? Well, you have the questions, and Spectrum Ergonomics has the answers. Go to our company website at www.spectrumergonomics.com and click on the link wearables. There you'll find a wide variety of services and other contractors that we work with to help make your product become a reality. We're here to help you through the process of iteration to packaging and beyond.
hey, if you're a startup wearable company and you'd like to be able to get your information on this podcast, please contact me at my company website, www.spectrumergonomics.com. I'd love to be able to feature a little bit about what you're doing to let the world know about your wearable. Well, thanks for joining me at the intersection of fashion and technology. And may you wear it well.